on the latest episode of Real Health with me, Carl Henry. I'm delighted to be joined by international best-selling author Heman Sunim, telling us what to do when things don't go your way. When we are, you know, very young and have a first love and the first love did not work out, we feel as though this is the end of the world. However, we learn that is not the case. We move on. We find some other people. We begin to see that uh, when things don't go your way, uh, maybe it's not the end. As ever, we're available on all podcast platforms. Remember, you can stay up to date on the latest news with the Irish Independent WhatsApp channel. This is an Irish Independent podcast. Today's episode of the Indo Daily comes to you from our sister podcast, The Bell Tell. Enjoy. Johnny Adair. Mad Dog Adair was behind the murder of many innocent Catholics during the Troubles. They say you're only as good as your last operation and under my direction C Company had been involved in many, many, many professional operations. But his lower shankle mob C Company was also behind two bloody feuds with fellow loyalists. The first with their rivals, the UVF. The Ulster Volunteer Force and the Ulster Freedom Fighters are locked in a bloody conflict. I will not rest until I see C Company finished. As far as I'm concerned, these people are scum. The second with the rest of the UDA. I wouldn't even call them Brigadiers because that, that, that's given them, a, that's given them a, a medal. I challenge them, five criminals, man to man, to come and face me and John White and leave the rest of the good rank and fail UDA out of this whole situation. That led the so-called Brigadiers to drive Adair's foot soldiers out of Northern Ireland. Adair's family and supporters are forced to flee on the overnight ferry to Scotland. By morning, Adair's stronghold is deserted. Kieran Barnes tells the story of the fall of Johnny Adair and the banishment of his supporters and their families from West Belfast. You don't go in and shoot dead a UDA Brigadier. And then say, look guys, can we forget about this old feud and draw a line in the sand? You don't draw lines after after that. That is just too significant an act of war. Feuds. This period after Johnny Adair is released seems to lead to a number of uh, loyalist feuds. Yeah, well what happens is Adair gets out in 89 and there's a famous picture of him coming out the prison gates. Of, of the maze and every other UDA brigadier from across Northern Ireland's there. It's like the food and rack court out, it's difficult issues that confront us all. He believes firmly that the best way to resolve them is through dialogue and non-violence. And I'm looking forward to working with Mr. Adair. They're all looking uncomfortable. You know, Adair's out, he's getting patted on the back, and you've guys like John Gregg there, Jim Gray. Billy McFarland from Derry, Jack and McDonald, and they're all kind of looking like, you know, I don't want to be here. And they're kind of, you know, looking nervous. These are brigadiers, but I mean, these are UDA leaders. At that time, Adair wasn't a UDA leader. So it's almost like he's having a royal procession coming out of, uh, when he gets out of jail that day, and there are courtiers sitting waiting to greet him. And it didn't sit well with him. You know, they're thinking to themselves, right, Johnny's getting out. He was seen as a bit of a way boy, perhaps a bit of a liability. So Adair comes back to, to the shackle and he just immediately starts, immediately, immediately takes over and he uses the, this direct and terrorism uh, 
conviction is, a, is like a badge of honour. First person in Northern Ireland to be convicted of direct terrorism. I went to jail for 16 years. Well, you did, really. You went to you were in jail for four, but, you know, you, you were sentenced to 16. So he comes out and he starts ruling the roost, uh, initially in the lower shankle, but then he has designs to take over the whole of West Belfast. And he's thinking to himself, well, um, you know, I'm the main man here. I want, you know, other UDA figures around that period would tell you he wanted to he wanted to be supreme commander of the UDA he wasn't he wasn't interested in listening to other the views of other UDA leaders or other UDA brigadiers they meet they met every so often under the guise of the inner council it was the six brigadiers across from Northern Ireland and Adair was Adair was showing up at these meetings even though he was the brigadier and he's thinking to himself um, what am I doing listening to these Egypts you know I'm Johnny Adair I'm the man who took the fight to the Republicans while, while you were all sitting in your armchairs. Um, so th- they know, the other brigadiers know that Adair's um, harbouring those thoughts uh, and, and, and a desire to take over. They don't want that, um, but Adair does, and Adair thinks he's entitled to it. And the first of two major feuds, the first one wasn't with uh, fellow members of the UDA, it was with the rival UVF. What happened there? How did that start? Well, the door gets out at the end of 89. Um, he returns to the shackle. He immediately starts getting his, his C company units. Immediately, they're heavily involved in drugs. They're heavily involved in criminality, extortion, that type of thing. So at the start of 2000, there was an incident in Portadown between um, where a UVF commander called Richard Jameson was murdered by the LVF. The LVF was a splinter group who broke off from the UVF in 85, 86 and they, they, they hate, there was intense hatred between the UVF and the LVF. So Richard Jameson's, mur- Jameson's murdered, the UVF leader in Portadown, his murder started 2000. The UVF respond by murdering two uh, young young men, uh, Andrew Robb, David McElwain in, in revenge. Andrew's throat was cut from the nape of his neck right round till his ear. He had a chunk missing out of his lip. He had a... a gash across his eye and round the side of his head and the back of his head as far as I could see was full of holes. So this this this, this deep intense hatred exists between these two groups. But it does friendly with the LVF figures in, in Mid Ulster Port of Down, Duncan and uh, Lurgan direction. So he has a culture day. There's a culture day in the Shankle in August two thousand and he invites LVF members and an LVF band. We're talking about bonds and, um, and and paramilitary flags and mass men. So what happened, or what eventually happened in the Culture Day was there was a stage rigged up on the shackle with um, which all the UDA brigadiers from Northern Ireland were invited to um, sit, sit at. And unbeknown to them, mass gun men and a mass gun woman wearing a skirt then gets on the stage and fires salt rifles in the air. And they're sitting looking, again, just completely perplexed. Frank McCubrey's on the stage, who's now a DUP uh, politician. Frank at the time was with the UDP, went on to become the mayor of Belfast. And Frank's looking totally bewildered. Frank didn't have a clue that this was going to happen. You know, when he's the shock in his face is palpable. But anyway, prior to that happening, the LVF has been... Um, has been invited to attend this band parade down the shackle. So they're walking down the shackle with a couple of UDA-affiliated bands and they're passing by the Rex Bar, which is a known UVF bar. And there's UVF members standing outside the Rex. 
So as the LVF band is passing by, they're actually got to remember, I mean, this is August 2000, really, really sunny day. Shankle is bonged with people, bonged with loyalist paramilitaries. As the LVF band is walking past the UVF haunt, the racks, they unfurl this LVF flag. And one of the UVF members standing outside the racks is Wayne Irving, who at the time was very, very young. So he runs and he grabs the LVF flag and pulls the LVF flag down. And this starts a huge melee between LVF members and supporters, UDA members and supporters, and the UVF. And the shangle becomes a war zone for the best part of three days. Um, UDA then go get guns from from the Lower Shangle Sea Company's area and come up and riddle the racks bar with um, with automatic with automatic weapons. And this starts a feud where initially it begins with the UDA putting UVF members and UVF families out of their homes in the Lower Shangle, which is a UDA stronghold. And the UVF responds by putting UDA members and their families out of other areas of the Shankle where the UVF would, would have a significant presence. And uh, the UDA then go and they attack the UVF office, well, uh, a UVF-linked office on the on the Shankle road. And this, it, 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 the Shankle literally becomes a war zone for two, a intensely, hugely dangerous place for two or three days. I, I remember Billy Hutchinson from the PUP was very was very vocal in this period. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and he was in no mood uh, for compromise no absolutely not uh, because what it, it, this it, it, you know in terms of loyalist feuds this this is as bad as it gets so it got to the stage where Billy Hutchinson was at risk of being murdered he was a, he was a Dar's number one target that's who the UDA who C Company wanted to kill more than anyone else and eventually he has to go to France um, for his own protection and the UVF also and the PUP wanted to get him offside because um, he was being really vocal about it and I think if, he, if you're asked Billy Hutchinson now about it he would he would you know, he would admit that that he was his, his interviews were hard hitting. He wasn't pulling no punches, and he was he was in the crosshairs. You know, it was a very very dangerous time for him. I will not rest until I see C Company finished. As far as I'm concerned, these people are scum, drug dealers, and don't deserve to even live in the shackle because what they have done to our people is unbelievable. The Provost couldn't do it in 30 years, but these people did in a matter of hours. So, the first killings of the feud are um, Jackie Coulter and Bobby Mahood. They're shot there by the UVF. Um, a couple of days after this, the weekend of mayhem on the shackle, um, Jackie Coulter was a low-level UDA member. He was an easy target. And um, Bobby Mahood was his friend. And they just happened to meet outside the bookies one day. And and the UVF were stalking the streets at the time. Their, their original target that day was was supposed to be Mo Courtney, who was a close ally of a door, so he's a convicted killer. And he was due to be down. Uh, he was due to be collecting money from a business in the, in the criminal road that day. And the UVF knew... He, you know, he, he visited there regularly at the same time. So he wasn't around. And uh, Jackie Coulter and Bobby Mahood are sitting in the car and, and they shoot them. Now the UDA then respond and Sam Rocket, who's UVF members, killed. And then the feud goes into North Belfast. There's a guy called Candy Greer who was involved with the UDA. He was murdered um, by the UVF. And the UDA respond by killing Mark Quayle in um, Rathcoole. And... There's a guy called Tommy English, he was UDA leader, was killed by the, the UVF in East Antrim. Uh, and then the, the UDA also killed a guy called Bernie Rice, who was a he was a PUP politician who's connected to the UVF and he was in the sixties again. Really, really easy talk. It's people just being shot dead for absolutely nothing. So the feud goes on, um, it rumbles on for two or three months, it gradually 
loses steam and uh, politicians and churchmen are, are sitting down and having negotiations with both factions to try and bring it to a close. And eventually comes to a close at the end of 2000 with um, seven people having lost their lives and lost their lives quite needlessly. There was absolutely no, no need for it. And it was all about, and this has all sparked the catalyst for this, is a Thursday culture in the shangle when the LVF showed up and were deliberately provocative towards the UDF. It's also worth bearing in mind too, Kieran, and I'll say this. I talked earlier about how the shangles split, the UDF split into three companies on the shangle, A company, B company, and C company. The only company to get involved in the feud was C company. UDA and A company, which is based up in Highfield, and UDA B company on the shangle, which is in the Woodville, two areas which would have a significantly greater UVF presence. They don't get involved. And that, that rankles it there. It there hates that. Now that was... Uh, C Company UVF feud. Yes, and it does in North UDA units in North Belfast and South East Antrim do get involved in it as well. But it's it they it started off started off with C Company and they, you know they they were the catalyst for it and they were the ones driving it. So can we say what finally finished the feud with the UVF and how long was their comparative peace before? a new feud broke out. Well, it, with the feud with the UVF just petered out. It, um, there was talks between politicians, there was talks between churchmen to bring it to an end. People were just sick of it. People living in the Shankill Road, living in Rathcool, Tigers Bay, the areas where the, the feud was at its height, they were just absolutely sick of it. UVA, it, it affected an awful lot of normal people. It did, and normal loyalists didn't want it. The majority of people involved in the UDA on the, on the Shankill didn't want it. It was being driven by C Company, A Company didn't want it, B Company didn't want it. So it just, it just petered out naturally. But the hatred uh, still festers to this day. You know, there's 22 years later, you know, there's there's still there's still a lot of still a lot of people who, who were involved in that and who were affected by that would, would detest the UVA, UVF or, or the UDA. But that was a mere prelude to uh, another feud uh, with the the rest of the UDA, which took the lives of some people like uh, Jim Gray and John Gregg, really well-known UDA figures. How did that come about? Well, what happened was, in, after that, Adair basically had, he had his card marked by the UVF. He knew from about the end of 2000 onwards, the UVF had it in their head, look, first opportunity, we're going to kill Adair, you better not stop, step out of line again. So he keeps his head down for a wee while. And then in the round 2002, he's just trying to seize control of, of the entire UDA. He's trying to install himself as a chief of staff. And there's a he installs a friend, his brigadier in North Belfast, a guy called Andre Shukri, who was an ally at the time. So he's also um, he's also trying to make moves to have the UDA brigadier in East Belfast, Jim Gray, replaced someone who would be amenable a puppet for a dare to control. So he's trying to he's trying to take over the UDA, you know, internally by putting his own men in positions of leadership. So it gets to the end of two thousand and two, and this just it's just not it's it's sitting really really badly with all the UDA leaders, particularly Jack McDonald, who was a veteran UDA leader in South Belfast. So at the end of two, in the round the end of two thousand and two, there's an attempt on the life of Jim Gray, who was the East Belfast UDA brigadier. Um, the LVF were blamed um, but the UDA suspect that they had a hand in it as well so 
that then leads to the UDA, the, 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 way, the mainstream UDA, the rest of the UDA being involved in a, a standoff with C Company. And what you then see is tit-for-tit attacks, tit-for-tat attacks between both groups. Um, you know, John Gregg, who was the South East Antrim UDA leader who went to jail for shooting Jerry Adams, the Sinn Féin president. His home, his home was attacked. It's pipe bombed. Adair's home's pipe bombed. There's um, attempts on Adair's life. There's there's shootings. So this gets this this is getting worse. It's getting out of hand. Uh, and then you have obviously had the attempt on Jim Gray's life over in East Belfast. So uh, in 2002, Adair has his license suspended. Bear in mind, when he got out of jail, having served four years of a 16-year term for directing terrorism, he's still technically on license for the remaining 12 years so uh, at the end of 2002 the NIO take the decision to suspend uh, Adair's licence and put him back inside for the duration of that 16 year sentence that he received in um, 20, uh, 1985 so Adair's off the scene at the end of 2002 and, and with that a couple of his closest henchmen, a couple of his closest allies realise, right, the writing's on the wall for us. Um, and they then sort of flip and go back over into the main UDA fold. Guys like Mo Courtney, um, a guy, guys like Winky Dodds, who was a Durs mentor when he first joined um, UDA. People like Alan McLean, who would have been heavily involved in the financial side of, of C Company. So they go back to the mainstream UDA and um, you can see the writing on the wall for for C Company. Um, by that stage, Adair's back inside and C Company's being run by a gang of what they call the Hallion Battalion. It's a, it's a group of youngsters, uh, all under the age of about 25, um, all loyalists who idolise Johnny Adair uh, and were brought up worshipping at his altar. Um, this was the next generation of sectarian killers. But uh, in the beginning of 2003, they make the fatal mistake of murdering John Gregg, who um, was shot dead. He was coming back from a Rangers game in Scotland. Uh, he was getting off the ferry terminal in Belfast, along with his second in command, a guy called Rob Carson. They get in the taxi and it's ambushed by C Company gunmen, who um, shoot up the taxi and they, them two, those two are killed instantly. Now that had a massive effect on the UDA. Grug, Gregg, as he was known, was a UDA icon, UDA legend. This is the man who came closest out of any loyalist to killing Jerry Adams. He shot, it, he shot it Adams, he ambushed Adams in it. As Adams was driving back from court in 1984 and he went to prison for it. So he's dead. Carson is number two, he's dead. Uh, UDA, you know, they look at it stunned. They can't, they can't believe that someone had the audacity to attack Greg, who's a UDA legend. So they converge on the shackle. In huge numbers. So when you say converge in huge numbers, were they armed? Did it happen in broad daylight? Did the did the security forces do anything about it? Did they know about it? Uh, they, they, the security forces knew about it, and they, they there was a heavy police presence on the Shangle when this happened. They took hundreds of UDA men from different brigades around Belfast and, and Newton Abbey, Carrick, and also UDA members from A Company and B Company who didn't want any of this um, coming down and forcing their supporters and his allies from the Lower Shankle. So the likes of Fat Jackie Thompson and people like that, John White, they jump on cars and flee to the ferry terminal in, in Larne and jump on the first boat to um, 
Scotland, including and among them is um, Johnny Dar's wife, Gina Crossan, you know, the mother of his kids. So they all flee. Adair's family and supporters are forced to flee on the overnight ferry to Scotland. By morning, Adair's stronghold is deserted. How many people would have been involved in this in this in this fleeing in the night? About two dozen, and then there was a trickle of more in the days after. So they get in the cars, they land in Stranar, and they, they don't know where they're going. They've nowhere to go really, and they're trying to arrange safe houses and they're trying to arrange you know accommodation. And they jump in a, they jump in their cars and they eventually stop. A couple of days later, they eventually arrive in Bolton of all places, and that, that was it was through that wasn't through intention, you know. It just, it just so happened that's where the petrol ran out. And it's ironic too because obviously the, the, the name of the football team in the town's Bolton Wanderers. You know, and, and these, are, these, are, these are guys that have wandered from the Shankland found their way here. So they were known. They were known as the Bolton Wanderers and some of them settled there. Like so fat, fat, uh, fat Jackie Thompson, he, um, he continues to live in Bolton and some of them go to Scotland. Some of them go to like Manchester and Blackpool and places like that. But that's them. They're gone. And that's the end of Adair. Uh, Adair eventually gets out of jail a couple of years later, and he can't he can't go back to the Shankill. He um, he goes and settles in Troon on the on the west coast of Scotland. Now there was one person who did return, a guy called Alan McCulloch. Alan McCulloch was the son of Bucky McCulloch, who was a UDA gunman who was murdered by the NLA in the early 1980s. And Alan McCulloch he just couldn't settle in Bolton, so he seeks assurances from the UDA in in Northern Ireland that he'd be safe to return he goes back to his home foolishly on the shackle McCulloch at the time was um, at the time of the feud just after Adair went back to prison he was a military commander in the shackle and he was he organised the murder of John Gregg he organised that attack at the, at the ferry terminal so he foolishly leaves Bolton and goes back having received assurances that he would be safe he meets up with the UDA having returned to Northern Ireland just a few days earlier they say to him look Alan we want you to hand over what, what weapons you had under your command or under your control so he brings them up to an arm stump in Mollusk where there's there's guns there he brings uh, Mo Courtney accompanies them and when they arrive there Mo, Mo Courtney in a second notice when they arrive there there's two loyalists two UDA members Rathcool waiting on them two UDA members who were great friends a John Gregg and Al McCulloch hands over the guns and then they shoot him in the head put his body in a ditch that's the end of Al McCulloch so, if the UDA in Northern Ireland are prepared to do that to Alan McCulloch, can you imagine what they'll do to Johnny Adair? You know, that he if he comes back, um, he's, he's a dead man walking if he comes back here. Uh, not only that, the UVF want to kill him too. So, he's in Troon. He goes to Troon after he gets out of, after he gets out of prison the second time. And he makes fleeting journeys back here. You know, he, he, he came back for a couple of TV programmes, but it's it's undercover the night. Um, it's when he's shown up. He's you know he's, he's touring the shackle again at four and five in the morning when there's nobody about. But he couldn't he couldn't step foot physically on the shackle. It would just be too great a, a risk for him. And you see that he, his uh, mother Mabel died a few years ago, and he um, he couldn't come back for the actual funeral. He was able to come back having struck an agreement with the UDA where he could go and sit with her body for an hour or two in the funeral home and then return immediately to, to Scotland. But his days of, of um, you know, swaggering around the streets in North and West Belfast, they're gone, they're long gone, and they will not return. Have you ever met Johnny Adair? Yeah, I met Johnny Adair on a couple of occasions. Um, the most recent was a few years back when I went over to Scotland to interview him. If you sit down with him, he's an affable guy, he's a pleasant guy. 
he's very open, he's very talkative, he's extremely polite, which it jars kind of with a you know with Tyrus Leader. This is a guy who says please, he says thank you. He, he's funny, but you have to understand that you know behind that is a ruthless individual, a guy who who planned murders, who was uh, led a, a ruthless terrorist killing machine. You know, someone who wouldn't have thought twice about having a, an innocent civilian gunned down. Um, so you know, it's you often find that I think Kieran with with paramilitaries, you meet them, and they just seem like a normal bloke who 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 likes a laugh and a beer at the weekend, and then you know that hides a facade, that hides. You know that hates the real person or another person on the underneath that skin. Where, you know, they're 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 just killers and they're almost psychopathic. What's the current situation? What's the current status of the UDA in the Lower Shankill now? Well, it's Ron Mo Courtney who who um, who's convicted of involvement, who's convicted of the manslaughter, the killing of Alan McCulloch, who we spoke about there. He's the he he basically runs it. It's it's fronted up by a guy called Dennis Cunningham. Um, Dennis was famously um, convicted of um, reading out a UDA statement. Um, Dennis had put his glasses on over his uh, balaclava when he was reading out the statement, and the police were able to prosecute him on the basis of his of his glasses and, and voice recognition. His glasses were quite distinctive. He's known as Dopey Dennis because of that mistake that landed him in jail. So. Uh, Dennis Cunningham's the front man, uh, but Mo Courtney, the convicted killer and former best friend of Johnny Adair, or close friend of Johnny Adair, he, he pulls the strings in the background. Is there anything we haven't said about Johnny Adair that we should have had? Well, uh, I want see, recently his, his life has been beset by tragedy. His, his oldest son, Jonathan, died in 2016 of a drugs overdose. And then not long after that, his mum, Mabel, died. And then more recently, his best friend, Skelly McCrory, um, who was almost like a Dutch twin, although twins in the sense of like the, the Arnie Schwarzenegger, Danny DeVito movie. One's really tall and the other one's really small, but they, they were very, very close. Um, he died. He, he died uh, last month. He uh, fell down steps and hit his head and then suffered a massive heart attack. So he's, he's, he's had a lot of tragedy uh, in the last few years. And he's what is also noticeable, noticeable for me is that he's lost the two people who would have been the first to back him up if Adair ever got in trouble and he needed physical help, the two people he could rely on most would be his son Jonathan and Skelly McCrory. And they're both now gone. And that makes him more vulnerable. You know, um, I think that in the past, if any enemy, a Johnny Adair wanted to try and attack him or, or do harm to him, they would think, well, if I did that, there, if I go after Johnny, Skelly will be after me or Jonathan will be after me. He doesn't have that anymore and it makes him more vulnerable and he's getting on you know he's, he's, he turns 60 next year so I don't think we'll ever see him back in Northern Ireland and to be fair to him I don't think he ever wants to come back to Northern Ireland he's made a life for himself in Scotland now he's been there 20 years and he's he's, he's, he's no desire to, to come back here This episode of The Bell Tale was produced by myself Kieran Dunbar sound designed by Graham Davidson the clips you heard were from Donald McIntyre, the BBC, UTV, RTE. And if you enjoyed listening to this podcast, you can find many more like it on belfasttelegraph.co.uk or wherever you get your podcasts. Remember, you can stay up to date on the latest news with the Irish Independent WhatsApp channel. 